When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Asian Madness listeners and friends. Welcome to the bonus episode of the Asian Madness podcast. So this case is a listener suggestion, but as you'll find out later, it's a bit more than just a suggestion. A listener by the name of James Cooper had reached out to me around the end of 2019, asking me if I would cover a case involving an American man murdering an Australian man in Thailand. I put it in my list and did some light research on it while working on my other episodes. This Thailand tourist murder happened back in 2018, and if this sounds a little bit familiar to you, you may have heard of this from Cambo, as he had covered it in one of his special edition episodes on True Crime Island. While we will discuss that specific murder case, I will also tell you more about the murderer, his past, and how it all will tie back to James, who suggested this case. Let's begin. First off, let's take a quick look at Pattaya, the once chill fishing town located along the coast of Thailand. Now though, it is more of a famous beach city, located about 100 kilometers southeast of the capital city, Bangkok. If you're not familiar with Thailand, then you probably don't really know what different cities are known for. And maybe you just assume, since it's a beach city, it's probably your average beach vacation destination. Well, yes and no. While Pattaya is a great spot for some family-friendly PG tourism, it also has a special kind of tourism. Yes, the sex industry. Tons of bars and clubs exotic dancers, sex workers, including men, women, and what they would refer to as the third sex, aka ladyboys. Is that word offensive? It depends on context, but in this case, it is the most commonly used word in Thailand when referring to trans people. Prostitution is technically illegal, but when there's money to be made, there's a way. Anyway, compared to many Western countries, Thailand is cheap, it's fun, and you can go to the beach. It's like the perfect vacation spot. And since we're all adults here, or I'm hoping you all are, it's not a secret that tons of men go to Pattaya for the nightlife. If anything, Pattaya has this sort of... this reputation where Americans, Europeans, and Australians go get drunk and act like fools. It's not just a place for horny men, though. It's also a place where criminals like to escape to. 
Lots of wanted criminals have been found hiding in Pattaya for some strange reason. Maybe because this place is just so chill? Anyway, this is enough introduction for this episode. So now that you have a basic idea of the location, let's now move on to the who and the what. So, there are lots of clubs and bars located in an area known as Walking Street for you to choose from. Young Thai women who work at these bars and clubs will most likely try to get your attention and get you to enter the bars. Let's take a look at one particular bar, the Ruby Club, although I hear it's more of a seedy bar. On the night of February 9th, 2018, an Australian man by the name of Benjamin Robb decided to hang out at the Ruby Club. This wasn't the first bar he hit up that night, though. Prior to the Ruby Club, he had spent some time at another bar and was pretty drunk by the time he got to the Ruby Club. I mean, not really weird or surprising. It's a street full of bars and clubs, so you bar hop and get drunk until you can no longer walk or drink or function. While at the Ruby Club, Rob struck up a conversation with a woman, possibly a sex worker or a waitress working at the club, and for some unknown reason, things supposedly turned rather violent. There are two versions as to what happened between Rob and the woman. Version 1. Rob was maybe drunk when talking to the woman, and he suddenly became aggressive for no apparent reason. Maybe he didn't like something she said, or maybe he was too drunk and was being an ass. Either way, other people supposedly noticed that he had his hand around the woman's neck, and it appeared as if he were strangling her. What really began to alarm onlookers was when the woman allegedly began turning blue in the face and her feet were no longer on the ground. He was literally holding her up by the neck. This is like some cliche fight scene from a movie, except it's a man doing it to a petite Thai woman. Version 2 The woman was talking to Rob, and maybe things turned a bit more flirty and playful, or maybe the two were joking around. Similarly to version 1, he did put his hand around her neck, but it was just done as a joke and no harm was actually done. Which version do you believe? While news sources say most people seem to have witnessed version 1, the woman in question denied that he was trying to cause her any harm. I also would expect people to step in if the woman was indeed in a bad situation. What do you believe? For one thing, she was like, there. She was the one directly involved. It's hard to be like, nah girl, you got it all wrong. Rejecting her account of what happened when she was there seems a little arrogant. But then again, what if she was only pretending everything was fine? If she was a sex worker or a waitress at the club, it wouldn't be hard to believe that she would want to stay away from anything that could hold her back from working, or something that could put her in trouble. So maybe by saying it was all cool, nothing happened, I'm fine, she would not be involved? That's just a guess on my part. Either way, other women who were out working that night, both from the previous bar and on the streets, testified that Rob was being rude, inappropriately touching and groping women randomly. He was also said to have been making a scene in a previous bar, and the owner of the bar, 
a British man named Lloyd, stated that Rob had gotten too drunk and lost his shit over the age of a waitress. I don't doubt that he could have been a rowdy guy and rude to people, but it's hard to say if he was a violent man or not. But let's get back to the situation at the Ruby Club. What happened next? Regardless of which version you believe, someone decided that Rob was a piece of shit who deserved to die. Jose Manuel Polanco, an American tourist who was also at the Ruby Club that night, saw what was going on between Rob and the woman. According to witness accounts, Polanco lunged at Rob and started punching him and kicking him. It doesn't seem as if Polanco verbally confronted Rob or even tried to pull Rob away from the woman. He simply went at Rob and unleashed his own version of hell. He pretty much beat the crap out of Rob, and while Rob was already on the floor, injured, unable to get up, Polanco took it a step further and stomped on Rob's head. That is some major violence going on, and people seem to disregard the violence. Some even cheered Polanco on. Some others even took photos of the incident. Eventually, Polanco stopped what he was doing as if finally realizing what he had done, and several people in the club told him to leave immediately, as someone had called the police already. Not sure if these people thought Polanco was the hero they deserved and wanted him to escape, but either way, very disturbing. Several others tried to help Benjamin Rob to his feet, and while he was sort of conscious, he was very wobbly and unable to stand on his own. Emergency services arrived and took Rob to Pattaya Memorial Hospital. It was apparent that he had suffered multiple injuries. Unfortunately for him, though, his head injuries were just too severe and he died later that night in the hospital. As we know, José Manuel Polanco fled the scene soon after he had finished beating the shit out of Benjamin Robb, as one does. But for some reason, he decided to do the right thing and turned himself in to the police just a few hours later. Was it because he felt guilty? Or because of something else? Or maybe he felt like he was saving the damsel in distress, so he was justified and, and not guilty? The police obviously were like, okay, you murdered someone. We're going to have to charge you for at least manslaughter. Polanco disagreed with the police and tried to explain that he was actually defending himself. It's really hard to see it like that when most people agreed that he was the one who attacked Rob first. But I'm assuming he maybe meant he was defending the woman? He certainly was not defending himself. I understand helping someone in distress, but was it necessary to cause this much injury? Either way, he was taken into custody while police conducted an investigation into what happened that night. What happened between Polanco and Rob was unfortunate, no doubt. And even if Benjamin Rob was known to be an asshole and a perv to women, it really wasn't Polanco's job to kill him. Let's put all that behind us for now, though as this is only half of what I want to discuss today. As you may have guessed, this is not the first time Polanco was arrested or charged for criminal activities. Polanco was born on June 5, 1974. I don't really have much information on him as a person, 
but from what I could find. He was born in New York, but later on moved to Miami, Florida. Since I really don't have all the details to his life, let's just get to the point. As a teenager, Polanco had an interest in cars and seemed to be pretty good when it came to fixing cars. Not shocking though, a teenage boy being into cars and stuff. Aside from working with cars, Polanco was also working at a local grocery store in North Miami. So the following events happened in March of 1993. A man by the name of Michael Cooper was at the grocery store while Polanco was working that day. The two struck up a conversation, talked about cars, and upon learning Polanco was good with cars, Michael Cooper asked if he would be willing to take a look at his car. Polanco agreed, and the two either went to look at the car later that day or scheduled to meet up some other time. Whatever the case may be, Polanco and Michael met up on March 8, 1993. In a bizarre turn of events, Michael would end up getting shot three times, would be left dying by his car, and Polanco would run away and return to his life as if nothing happened. Michael's body was discovered and police had no idea who could have done this. They started their investigation, but it wasn't until someone called the North Miami police did they finally land on a solid lead. The caller, a high school teacher who taught at the school Jose Polanco attended, told the police that a student, also a friend of Polanco's, had told them that they heard from other friends that Polanco had killed a man a few days ago. This was pretty damning. So the police took a trip to the school, hoping they could question Jose Polanco. Polanco was surprisingly forthcoming. He told the police that yes, he knew who Michael Cooper was, and that yes, he had met him at the grocery store, and also, yes, he had met up with him so he could take a look at his car. He even told the police Michael Cooper paid him $20 to fix his car. The police also showed Polanco a photo of Michael, and he confirmed that, again, yes, this was the man he met. At this point, police weren't sure if Polanco was just someone who saw the victim before his death or if he knew more than he was letting on. So they decided to ask Polanco to come down to the station for further questioning. Technically speaking, they weren't arresting him or charging him with anything, so I suppose he could have said no. But then again, he was 18, barely an adult, and still in high school. He later said that he felt like he didn't really have a choice. Anyway, they made their way to the police station to continue their talk. I can't say for sure what happened, but an hour or so after being questioned by the police, Polanco confessed to murdering Michael Cooper. He told the police where he had dumped the gun, and also told them where his bloody clothes were at. So now you know how this case ties back to James Cooper, the listener who suggested this case. The victim, Michael Cooper, is James Cooper's older brother. Michael was born on August 9, 1960, and he was the middle child. All in all, Michael was very close to his family, was well-liked, and cared for his family and friends. Michael was also said to have been the artistic and creative type, as in he had talent when it came to drawing, performing, photography, and videography. Something else that may be relevant to this case was Michael's sexual orientation. Yes, he was a gay man. 
It really shouldn't matter, but sometimes it may be relevant. Michael was gay, but only those close enough to him knew about it. And that included his co-workers at an advertising agency, and a man he was seeing. I don't blame him. It probably takes time to feel comfortable enough to come out, and having to worry about how others might react is pretty stressful. So as we already know, Michael was shot to death by Polanco on the day they met up. Obviously, we only have Polanco's account of what actually happened that day, and here's what he said happened. The two were sitting in Michael's car, presumably discussing whatever trouble the car was experiencing. Suddenly, Michael pulled a gun out, threatening him, and performed a sexual act on Polanco. He was scared at first, but soon decided to fight back. The two struggled for the gun, and that's when he shot Michael once. Polanco then got out of the car, shot at Michael two more times, then ran away. He passed by a river on his way home and threw the gun into the river. After arriving home, he changed out of his blood-stained clothes and got rid of them. I wonder why he was telling his friends that he killed Michael, though. Either he felt some sort of guilt and needed to get it off his chest, or he was bragging about killing someone. Either way, good thing he talked. After Polanco confessed to all this, he was charged and put on trial for second-degree murder. On September 20th, 1996, he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. This may sound like a rather light sentence, but remember, Polanco was only 18 when he killed Michael, and if you take into consideration his account of what happened, he was only acting in self-defense. The police did manage to find Polanco's bloodied clothing that he had discarded, but the gun he threw into the river was never recovered. Since the gun was never found, it was hard to tell who the gun belonged to. It was probably assumed that the gun belonged to Michael because the two were in Michael's car, and Polanco also stated that Michael drew the gun on him. According to the Cooper family, though, Michael never owned a gun, never even fired a gun, and he was staunchly anti-gun. If the police also found out that Michael was gay, this may or may not have influenced them. I don't think the world was as accepting as it is today, so knowing this about Michael could have very well worked against him. It's really hard to say, though. What do you think happened? There's really only two ways this could have gone down. Either Michael did, in fact, pull a gun out and threaten Polanco, or Polanco could have shot Michael for other reasons, which could be over money or maybe over Michael being gay. We've probably all heard of people who simply have issues with non-heterosexuals, even if these people are literally just existing and not bothering them. The gun could have also very likely belonged to Polanco. I know he was 18, rather young, but also not impossible. Polanco began serving his sentence on December 30th, 1996. A 12-year sentence would mean that he would have been out sometime in the year 2008. Except that was not the case. Two years after his prison term started, he came up for parole. Michael's brother James made a statement at the hearing against Polanco being released so soon but probably because of his age and, again, the circumstances surrounding the case, 
the judge decided to let him go. He was released on September 1st, 1998. Fast forward to 2018, he killed Benjamin Robb and he was supposed to go to court. The strange thing is I could absolutely find nothing on his whereabouts or if he was even sentenced to prison or if he was let go. I've tried reaching out to Cambo and Cambo's lovely wife, reached out to reporters who covered this case, and I got nothing. One reporter did respond to me, but according to him, he had no idea what happened afterwards. I did come across a Thai forum discussing this case, and someone stated, quote, Jose has already been released with his passport. No court case, no reenactment, no justice, end quote. I have no idea who this person is, so this should be taken with several grains of salt. But then again, this is also something that could have happened. I don't really know why they would release him. Maybe the city preferred it if it appeared to have less crime for the sake of tourism. Maybe Polanco had some cash or friends with money and they paid someone off. Or maybe it was just a hassle. If he were let go, I think he would want to lay low. If he wasn't let go, maybe he was thrown in a Thai prison? I sort of doubt this because I feel like there would be some form of follow-up with articles and whatnot. It's like after everyone reported what happened that night, the whole ordeal just dropped off the radar. Absolutely no follow-ups. Very odd indeed. So, there you have it. The man who killed twice in the name of self-defense. We do know Blanco denied the murder charge because he said he was acting in self-defense, which may not be 100% true since he was the one who threw the first punch and he literally beat a man to death. Sure, he may have been bothered by Rob assaulting the woman, but like I mentioned, he never tried to pull him away, talk to him, or just, you know, give him a couple punches to get him off the woman. Imagine the kind of rage you would have to have to kill a man with your bare hands. Clearly, I was not there for either of the murders, so it's all very much hearsay and speculation on my part, but this guy sure has a lot of self-defense moments. I know this episode was not my typical Asian story, but half of it did take place in Asia, and after hearing Michael's story and how it tied to the Bataya case, I decided to look into it and share it with you guys. Thank you, Cambo and the lovely Kate, for helping me look into any updates. I really appreciate it. I would also like to thank James Cooper once again for bringing this case to my attention and for providing details about his brother's case. Details you would otherwise never find online. My condolences to the Cooper family, and if I ever hear back or learn more about the Polanco situation, I will 100% update you all. If you yourself happen to know anything about this case, or if you know Jose Polanco, please do let me know. Thank you again for tuning in. And please always stay safe and try to be kind. Till next time. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.